Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 23, 29 through 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some, of you, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that when we gather, you're with us. Lord, we're thankful that your spirit dwells among your people and you continue to strive with us to teach us. And Lord, as we come to this text today, we realize we're dealing with a hard teaching. And Lord, what we ask is that you would help us. Lord, help us to see you, to hear you, to understand your words. Lord, please open our eyes and our ears so that we can receive this teaching. And Lord, even though we're studying a passage in which your anger, your condemnation, your wrath is on display, Lord, help us to also see your love, your mercy, your justice, and kindness. Lord, we need you. We need you now more than ever. Amen. Y'all, please have a seat. Is everybody cozy? Getting full. I'm liking it. Makes me happy. It's a good day. It's a good day to celebrate the resurrection. My name is LJ. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. I'm the pastor of youth and mission. Uh, Jamie is out this week. He'll be out this week and next week. Um, Austin will be filling in next week. So if you are visiting with us and you want a full sampling of the stylings of preaching that we offer here at Redeemer, uh, come this week, next week, and the following week for Jamie's return and Uh, You won't get all of our good preachers. Uh, You'll get one bad one and a couple of good ones, and I'll let you determine which one is which. Uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding on that. Um, For the past few weeks, uh, we have been working through Matthew 23. Uh, It is our practice at Redeemer um, to typically preach through a book of the Bible, passage by passage. Um, Today, I have the privilege of concluding what Jamie has affectionately referred to as woeful October. Uh, We've been in the woe passage now for six weeks, and today we get to conclude with the seventh woe. Um, I would like to tell you that it's really optimistic, but unfortunately the seventh woe is the most severe of the woes. Um, It's uh, distinct from the other six woes, whereas the other six woes were Jesus warning and condemning specific behaviors of the Pharisees. Uh, He condemns the fact that the Pharisees have shut the doors to the kingdom and have prevented people from entering in. He condemns the fact that through their teaching of the law, they've distorted the ethics of the kingdom of God. They've misrepresented the law. It's not that the law was bad. It was that what they had placed in addition to the law was a distortion. And then They also celebrated outward appearances of righteousness while neglecting the inward nature of the soul. 
they celebrated being able to walk around and, and show how amazing they were and how clean they were without ever actually addressing the sinfulness of their own hearts. And the first six woes deal with condemning those behaviors. The seventh woe is a con- condemnation of another behavior, action of the Pharisees. But what makes it distinct is that this condemnation also comes with a proclamation of impending judgment. So the woes are coming to an end, and at the end of the woes, Jesus has said, judgment is here, now is the time. So it is a heavy passage, and when we approach a heavy passage, I just want to go ahead and acknowledge uh, all Scripture is profitable. It's all breathed out by God. It's all good for us. So when we approach it, we're going to just kind of hit it head on and trust that what God has for us in this passage is, in fact, good for us. Um, As we go through it, I'm going to go ahead and give you my points at the front end. These are more observations than they are points. This isn't going to be a great sermon for me to preach point by point. I'm going to preach through the text, give yourself some space, uh, and just fill in (laughs) observations as we go. But the first observation that I would like to point out on this is... Uh, In this text, one of the things that is important to keep in mind is that Jesus' judgment and his anger are just. It's kind of on the nose. It's a pretty easy point, but it's important to make it. Jesus' judgment and anger are just. Give yourself some space to write. The next one I want to point out is Jesus' judgment and anger are well-placed. They're well-placed. The point that I'm trying to make there is that his judgment always falls where it's supposed to fall. All right, the third point that I want to make is this one, and it'll be a little bit more difficult to, to establish, but I think it is there and it's important for us to see, and that is that the judgment and anger of God, of Jesus, reveals God's good character. It reveals God's good character. Now, a couple of boundaries that I want to put in place as we approach this text are this. Number one... When we come to this text, one of the things that we want to, uh, to keep in mind is, is that we're reading a text about an interaction that Jesus and his disciples are having with the Pharisees. The disciples in this text are witnessing an anger that is not directed at them. They're witnessing an anger that is directed at the Pharisees. So as we study this text, we are witnessing the disciples as they witness this. All right? and, and making that distinction is very important. And the reason why I find it important is that sometimes when we read about the anger and judgment of God, it's very easy for us to automatically assume that that, that anger is immediately applied to us. So I want to create a little bit of a separation here. Has anybody ever had the experience of being near somebody when they got punished? Y'all ever had that experience where, like, I remember at a ball game when I was a kid, I was in the bleachers with a friend of mine waiting for my game to start. There's these two kids in front of me, no idea who they were. Their parents show up, they just let them have it. I mean, their parents tore into them. I'm sure they deserved it. And then their parents just let them have it. And I just remember sitting there thinking like, uh, I feel like this is a private moment, but I'm very here for this. <laughs> like, I don't know what's going on, but I feel uncomfortable. And I'm going through these emotions because I'm like, I can feel the heat of your rage. It's kind of radiating onto me. I begin to feel guilty for whatever it is that they did. Like, I I don't know. I'm about to apologize, and I don't even know these people. Like, it's this very awkward moment, and about the time that you realize, like, hey, this anger is not directed at me, you're kind of stuck there like a bug looking at a light. Like, you know you should probably turn around, but you're not going to. Like, you're going to it. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, well, I mean, now that I realize this isn't directed towards me, I think I'm just going to sit and enjoy it for a little bit, see, see what comes. 
maybe learn a lesson. At least I'm going to watch and realize whatever it is that they're doing, I better not do it. I mean, essentially, that's why Jesus is doing this in front of the disciples. He's already told them, hear the words that the Pharisees say as they speak from the seat of Moses, but do not do what they do. It's a really intense interaction, and we want to remember the fact that the disciples are witnesses of this, not recipients of this. They're not receiving the anger and wrath at this moment. They're seeing it, and they're being warned about it. The second thing that I want to set up as a boundary for us today is the realization that the disciples are not surprising, or the disciples are not surprised with the anger. They're not surprised by Jesus' anger in this situation, that Jesus' anger in this situation is coming within a very specific context. Now, all of us have been surprised by anger before. All of us have walked into a situation where somebody's hot and we're not sure why, right? I remember I've done this. I did this to my wife one time. I woke up one day and I woke up mad. And I was mad all day. And I was angry. I was short. I was curt. I mean, in all ways, I was just angry. And finally, my wife was like, why are you so mad at me? And it dawned on me, I'm a very vivid dreamer. I mean, I have very vivid dreams, and sometimes I wake up and I have a hard time separating what happened in a dream versus what happened in real life, and something had happened in a dream, and I was mad, and I woke up, and my wife for an entire day suffered the wrath of my anger, and there was no context for it, and that's a really scary thought. Now, most of the time, there is a context, but what I want to make clear in this situation, when we witness the anger of Jesus in the situation, it is not a surprising anger. There's a very specific context. And we want to realize Jesus does not lose control. Jesus is never going to surprise you with anger. He's never going to surprise you with judgment. I think the, the context of the text at large are going to help us see what's building and why Jesus' rage builds up. If you have your Bible, a copy of your Bible, flip back to chapter 21 for me. So the text that we're in right now falls within a teaching within Scripture that's called uh, the teaching of the Holy Week, right? So starting in chapter 21, um, this is the beginning of the Holy Week, beginning of the eight days that will span all the way from Jesus' triumphant entry in chapter 21 all the way to the resurrection of Jesus on the following Sunday. So there's eight chapters, Matthew 21 through 28, that are going to tell the story of those eight days. Now, the way that we preach, we spread these things out that it's, it's easy for us to forget that these things are not just connected, but they're very intricately connected. They're happening one right after another. To give you an idea, the triumphal entry, well, let me start here, the woe passage when Jesus is pronouncing his woes during the Holy Week, that is probably happening on Tuesday, on Tuesday of Holy Week. The triumphal entry was Sunday, all right? So the span between Sunday and Tuesday is not very much. We preached chapter 21 at the end of July. So it's easy for us to lose the context, right? On Monday, Jesus goes in and he clears the temple. He rids the temple of the robbers and thieves, the, the moneylenders, those that were using the temple for their own personal gain, and he restores it to a place of prayer and worship. And then on Tuesday, Jesus goes in and he establishes himself as a teacher within the temple and he begins to teach authority. That's chapter 21, verse 23. Tuesday, listen to this. Tuesday begins in chapter 21, in verse 23, 
And that sermon for us was preached in the first week of August. So think about the way this is building up. This interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees has a very specific context. So he goes into the temple and he begins to teach. And as he's beginning to teach, his authority is challenged. And when his authority is challenged, he responds by teaching these parables. And these parables speak of the kingdom of God that is coming. But it also condemns the Pharisees for the way that they've managed the work of God in the past. And the Pharisees know exactly what Jesus is accusing them of. So the Pharisees then turn around all in the same Tuesday and begin grilling Jesus with question after question, hoping that if they can get him to trip up in his words, hoping that maybe if they can get him to misstep, then they would have a reason to silence him, have a reason to run him off, maybe even have a reason to put him to death. But Jesus speaks with authority and never once does he falter all Tuesday morning, they're going back and forth, this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees until they finally reach a point where the Pharisees have nothing left to say. They have nothing left to say. And when Jesus has finally silenced the Pharisees, he turns to his disciples and he says, hey, these guys, don't be like them. They're hypocrites. They're liars. They say one thing, they do another thing. They're going to boast of their righteousness so much to make you think that they're impressive people. But if you come to them, they're going to shut up the kingdom of heaven to where you could never enter. They're going to put burdens on you that you could never live up to. And you know what? They can't live up to them either. And the disciples, I just imagine, are sitting there like, Jesus, we hear you. But they're right there. Like, this is awkward. Like, you're going to say all this stuff, and they're sitting right there. And then finally, Jesus, he turns to the Pharisees this same Tuesday. This same Tuesday, he turns to the Pharisees, and he pronounces, woe. Woe on you. And in this final one, it's not just woe, but it's woe on you for all that you've done, and judgment has arrived. So let's look at the text. It starts very similar to the ones before in verse 9. He simply says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So what's the behavior? The behavior is the same behavior that they've been acting out this entire time. They say one thing and they do another thing. They do not live up to the task that they have been given. They are, in fact, hypocrites. Well, what was their hypocrisy in this situation? Well, here the hypocrisy is the practice of building tombs of the prophets decorating the monuments of the righteous, and then declaring, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So the Pharisees were here, were practicing something that's very common in all uh, forms of religion, that is the veneration of Uh, of the holy people that have gone before, this acknowledgement that we want to honor them, we want to lift them up. So the Pharisees wanted accolade. They wanted credit for going and building these beautiful tombs for the prophets. They wanted credit for going and decorating the monuments of the righteous men that had gone before. And not only this, is they wanted to verbalize their own self-righteousness by saying, man, our fathers really messed up. These great men came and our fathers shed their blood. But if we had lived back then, we would have never done the things that our fathers had done. Man, this is self-deception at its best. You want a takeaway? You want an application from this point? An application from this point is if you're going to approach Christ, you should probably always approach him from a humble heart. Don't allow yourself to be deceived. 
Don't allow yourself to be deceived that you're more righteous than you are. These guys were convinced that if they had been there when the atrocities going on, they would have never taken part of them. Guys, we've all convinced ourselves of the same thing. Man, if I were in the wilderness, I wouldn't complain like they did. Man, if I were Israel during the time of Judges, I would have never asked for a king. I would have rejoiced that God was my king. Yeah, we would have. I guarantee you we would have. We're sinful people. We're sinful just like the Pharisees were. So the Pharisees, they were hypocrites because they were elevating their own self-righteousness and trying to distance themselves from the failure of their fathers. And Jesus just tells them outright, hey, you are a hypocrite. Why are they a hypocrite? says this, thus you witness against yourselves, and I'm going to read the rest of the passage, thus you witness against yourselves that your sons, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I will send prophets, or therefore I send prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. Jesus says, guys, you're hypocrites, and this is why you're hypocrites. You say that you wouldn't do the same thing that your fathers did back in, back in the day of the prophets, but I'm telling you now, that you have the same heart of your fathers and you're going to repeat the same action of your fathers. He uses language here to describe that they have the same heart. He says, you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. I want to stop here for a second and make something very clear. The testimony of the fact that they were sons of those who murdered the prophets is not Jesus saying that the Pharisees are being judged simply for being sons of those who committed a sin. Jesus has cleared this up early in his ministry, and it's recorded in John chapter 9, where Jesus is asked, well, who, who was it that sinned that caused this man to be blind? And Jesus said, hey, it wasn't his sin nor the sins of his father's, but it was so that God might be glorified. Jesus makes it clear he's not punishing people for the sins of their fathers, but he is saying, hey, the fact that you claim to be sons of those who spilled the blood is a testimony against you. And it's not saying you're guilty of their actions, but it is saying as sons, what's happening is you're repeating the very same thing that your fathers did. You know, this kind of plays out in all of our lives in, in a little bit of a funnier way. Adults in the room, how many of you remember the specific time when you got onto your children and it immediately dawned to you, oh, I've turned into my mother. <laughs> I've turned into my father. <laughs> Y'all know that moment, that moment where your whole life you're like, I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to be like them. I'm never going to let it happen. But then all of a sudden you open your mouth and it's like your parent's voice speaks through you <laughs> and it dawns on you. Man, you've repeated the same thing that they, they've done. Why? Because you were raised by them. It's what you know. So it's natural for you to repeat that. But what Jesus is pointing to here when he says, hey, you are sons of your father, I think he's pointing far beyond just simply saying, hey, you're the descendants of those that spilt the blood. See, Jesus has another interaction in John chapter 8, which he's engaging with the Pharisees. And while he's engaging with the Pharisees, 
Jesus gives them a word saying, hey, this is the teaching I've received from the Father. And the Pharisees say, no, we know who our father is. Our father is Abraham. And Jesus says, no, your father's not Abraham. If your father was Abraham, you would do the very things that Abraham did. And they were like, well, how could you say that? Our father is the only God, the one and only God. And they were like, no, your father is definitely not God. Because if your father was God, then you would receive the one that God has sent. But since you do not receive the one that is sent, you do not recognize the truth. And let me tell you why you don't recognize the truth. You don't recognize the truth because your father is the father of lies. Your father is Satan himself. So when Jesus is bringing this accusation against the Pharisees, Jesus is making it very clear, hey, Do you want to know why judgment is coming and why it's coming with force? It's coming with force because you as a Pharisee are repeating the same sins that the enemy has done since the beginning of time. He says, you want to know why you're guilty of judgment? Because you're a serpent. And you know how I know you're a serpent? Because you're the son of a serpent. And anywhere you go, you find out that the son of a snake is a snake. Jesus kind of calls a spade a spade in this situation. And he says, hey, this behavior, this action that you're going through, let me make something clear. You are on your way to hell and judgment and eternal torment. And I see no way for you to escape this sentencing. He gives him a command. He even goes on. He says, fill it up. Fill up the measure of your father's. It's a very interesting command. It's indicative. I mean, it's imperative. He's actually telling them, I'm aware of what you're going to do. Go out and do it. Now, let's be clear, Jesus is not giving them permission to sin. He's not condoning their sin in any way, shape, or form. But he's aware of the fact, hey, I know what's coming, but go do it. Now, here is where we see a glimpse of the goodness of God. He said, fill up the measure of your fathers. Now, this is really fascinating because this is speaking to this idea that there was a there was a limit to the wrath of that God uh, there was a limit to the judgment that God was willing to store up before he poured that judgment down onto someone and the reason why people would have thought that is because they recognized that they have to maintain both the justice of God but also the grace and mercy of God those two things always go together he's not divided so in this situation People are well aware of the fact, hey, God is long-suffering. He's patient, he's kind, he's merciful. He's patient, he's kind, he's merciful. But we're coming to the point where he's been patient for so long that now it's time for him to enact his plan of salvation, and part of that plan is going to be unleashing judgment on those that have opposed him. This is a very harsh teaching. So he says there's no way for you to escape hell. I want to clarify something in this situation when we talk of hell. Uh, Number one, I want to clarify the fact that the Pharisees are not on their way to hell simply because they're sons of people that have committed sin. We've clarified that already. But they're not even on their way to hell simply because of the fact that they're Pharisees and scribes. We have examples of other Pharisees that came to Christ. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He's a great teacher. But at one point, he encountered Christ, and he realized that there was something he doesn't know, and he listened to the message of Christ. And we assume that there was a transformation that takes place within the heart of Nicodemus because we see him again at the cross pulling Christ off, being a part there, ministering to his body. Not only that, but we have the example of Paul. 
Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul did exactly what Jesus said the Pharisees were going to go on to do. When more people were sent out to proclaim the message, Paul chased them from town to town. He held the coats as people were put to death. He did exactly that, but Paul wasn't destined to go to hell because in this situation, what we see is Paul encountered Christ, and when he encountered Christ, the message of Christ changed him. So what's distinct about these Pharisees in this situation, why is the judgment rightly falling on them? Well, the judgment is rightly falling on them because they have rejected both the messenger and the message. See, the Pharisees are sinful just like all of us are sinful. We all fall short. We've all set ourselves up to a position apart from Christ where we, we are opposed to the kingdom. We're opposed to God himself. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins But in this situation, the Pharisees not only were sinful like the rest of the world is sinful, but they were sinful. And when the message of salvation came, they rejected it. And they repeated the same sins of their fathers. They rejected the message and they killed the messenger. And now it was time for judgment. So then he goes on and he clarifies what he's going to do. He says, therefore, I send prophets, wise men, and scribes. This is the goodness of God. Listen to this. If you are here today, if you are here today, there's a reason for us to rejoice in a text like this because if you're here today, it means no matter how often false teachers attack the prophets, the scribes, the teachers that God has sent, God continued to send more. And that's a reason for us to rejoice. If you heard the message, it's because you encountered a teacher that didn't close the door of the kingdoms to you, but instead opened them up so that you could see Christ and you could enter freely. So Jesus said, I'm going to send them. Now, this is also really sneaky. (laughs) Who has the authority to send prophets? Only God has the authority to send prophets. So in the middle of Jesus unleashing his anger and his wrath on the Pharisees, he makes one more thing very, very clear. When I speak, I speak with the authority of God. Why? He's God. Man, this would have got under the Pharisee skin so badly. But not only is that judgment proclaimed at this point, he does one more thing. He makes them aware of the fact that that judgment is impending. It's imminent. He said, all of the blood of the righteous is about to fall on you. All of the blood from Abel to Zechariah. That's an interesting statement, from Abel to Zechariah. I really want this to be kind of like a from A to Z type pun, but it doesn't work in Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> It only works in English, which would be awesome, but I can't make that. But what we have here is we do have this sense of like he's calling all of the blood of the righteous that has been spilt from Abel, which we know the story of Abel, right? The son of Adam and Eve who offered a good offering to the Lord and was received by the Lord. And his brother Cain was so enraged that his offering was rejected that he rose up against him and murdered him. The first murder that takes place within scripture. And he's saying, hey, the righteous blood of Abel is now about to fall on you, Pharisees. And not only the righteous blood of Abel, but all of the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a little more confusing. We don't, we don't know for certain who this Zechariah is. There's a couple of ideas. He could be the Zechariah from Second Chronicles. Uh, he seemed to have died a similar death that Jesus is speaking to here. But his genealogy is recorded differently, so we don't know. It could be Zechariah, the prophet that came to Israel after the exile. Um, 
but we, his genealogy is recorded the same, but we don't know how he died. So we're not certain. And if you're interested in that, would like to know more about those theories, I, I, come talk to me. I'll send you the commentaries and you can go read about them yourselves. But for this passage, I don't think it really is that significant who Zechariah was, but it's more significant to realize that what Jesus is saying is, hey, from the beginning of history, when man fell since the fall, God has had a plan that he's been working to bring about salvation. And since the fall, there have been those that have worked against that plan. There have been those that have killed the prophets, that have killed the righteous, that have killed the, 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 the scribes, those that have come to proclaim the message. And what Jesus is saying very clearly in this situation is simply this, hey, there's nothing that's going to stop the work of God. And I've been patient, but now my patience has come to an end. And then he ends with this statement, truly I say to you, all things will come upon this generation. All of the judgment of those that have worked against God's plan is about the fall. And I think this statement makes it very clear that he's not just referring to the judgment that these people will receive at the end of their lives or the judgment that they'll receive at the end of time during the final day of judgment. I think Jesus at this point is saying, hey, there is a very real judgment that you guys are going to see, you're going to witness, and you're going to feel the weight of, and you're going to feel it before this generation is over. This is a hard teaching. Jesus was calling people vipers and snakes. It's not typically the passage, the way that we want to think about Jesus. I want to kind of conclude just going back and reminding you of the three points that I said. On this passage, one of the things that we realize is Jesus' judgment and anger are, in fact, just. They're just. Honestly, if, judge, if God's judgment had fallen on any of us when we were in our sin, living in our sin, it would have been just. In Ephesians, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and what you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work on the sons of disobedience, among whom we were all once, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God's judgment in this situation is just because his judgment is just to fall in any situation in which sinfulness reigns, in which people live in a state of sinfulness. But it's not just just because of that. It's also well-placed. God is not haphazard with the way that he administers judgment. His judgment falls exactly where he desires the judgment to fall. The judgment falls on the Pharisees specifically because the Pharisees had rejected the message that salvation would have offered. In John 3, 16 through 21, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to it, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
The Pharisees were receiving the judgment, not because they were more sinful than the rest of us. They were receiving the judgment because they had done what Jesus had warned about in John chapter 3. They rejected the life. They rejected the means of salvation. Because they rejected it, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way, the truth, and the life, and they reject him, what other way and truth and life are there? There is nothing left for them. Now, the fact that God's judgment is well-placed, his anger and judgment is well-placed, is really, really good news for us that believe. Jesus is not haphazard with his judgment. You will not accidentally fall into his judgment. When we read this passage, specifically for those of us that believe Christ and follow Christ, I want you to be aware of the fact that if you've placed your trust in Christ, there is no way for you to accidentally fall into this. Why? Because Paul tells us very clearly, for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, there is no longer condemnation. Well, how can there no longer be condemnation? Well, that leads to the last point, because Jesus' anger and his judgment reveal the goodness of God. Whereas he had all rights to pour out his judgment on the sinful world, he chose to wait patiently instead. But that judgment's going to fall, and it has to fall somewhere. Guys, it's Tuesday, and we're in Holy Week. It's about to be Thursday where Jesus is going to be betrayed, then it's going to be Friday where he's crucified, then it's going to be Sunday where he's resurrected. And here's the beauty of Holy Week. The judgment that we all deserve has to fall somewhere. It has to fall somewhere. So where does it fall? It falls on Christ on the cross. And he takes the full judgment that the rest of us deserves. He takes all of our sin upon himself, and what does he give us in exchange? He gives us his righteousness. Why? Because, man, he's good. He's good, and he's just, and the judgment is going to fall somewhere. And here's the beautiful thing. This is why we come to a passage like this, and those of us that believe, we celebrate when we see this. Why? Because when Jesus pours out his wrath and his anger, it proves to us that he's willing to go to war against any enemy of the kingdom of God. And if we've become children of the king, that means he's willing to go to war against all of the things that become destructive towards us. What is that sin, death, the devil, the slavery that we once lived in, the bondage, the anxiety, the depression, all of those things deserve the wrath of God and all of that wrath is poured out in force, not on us who believe, but they're poured out on Christ on the cross and he does with it what we could never do. He overcomes it. And though it leads him to death, he cannot be held by death and instead he's resurrected. And because he's resurrected, we have the promise of new lives in ourselves. So every week as a church, we celebrate the resurrection. Well, how do we celebrate it? We celebrate it by continuing to preach the good news of Christ crucified. And we do that through the taking of the bread and the cup. We take the bread and the cup together to continue to proclaim what he has done on our behalf. Because it was that blood that was spilt and it was that body that was broken. And if you're here with us today, we're going to invite you, if you have chosen to follow Christ and you have made that decision known to your church, we invite you to celebrate with us, to worship with us by proclaiming the gospel through the taking of the bread and the cup. If you're here today and you're looking at this passage and you're feeling the weight of the sin of the Pharisees, you're feeling the weight of what's going on and you realize, I've never, I've never decided to follow Christ. I've never made that decision I've never trusted him fully. 
I'm going to ask that you let the bread in the cup pass. And it's not because we desire to withhold anything from you. See, the bread in the cup for us, it's a symbol. It's a symbol that we use to continue preaching what Christ has done on our behalf. If you don't believe, I want to offer you something better than this symbol. I want to offer you the opportunity to respond to Christ. And and to recognize, hey, I, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that because of my sin... I deserve the judgment, I deserve the wrath, but I can't handle it. And to just simply ask the Lord if he would be willing, if he would be willing to cover you, to forgive you, and to make you new. And if you were in that position and you would like to have a conversation with somebody on how to take those steps, I invite you to find somebody. You may have come with a friend that may know how to have this conversation with you. You can come talk to me or to Austin or anybody that's here on the stage. We would love to have that conversation. Now I'm going to ask the ushers if you'll please come forward. We're going to worship as they pass out, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together.